verses of this chapter together today. Alright, so Mark 12 and verse 1. Now that he is Jesus in verse 1. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some fruit from the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent them another servant, and at, the, at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard, vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this parable that you have given us. We pray as we study it together now that we would be challenged by it, encouraged by it, and that you might work in each one of us by your Holy Spirit to grow us together in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. I'm sure we've all had those times in life where Things are going well. Now, it might be for a day where everything just falls into place. It might be for a more extended period of time where things are going well. You feel like everything is under control. Everything is coming up the way that you want it to. I'm sure we can all think about those situations. And then all of a sudden... It feels like we've had the rug pulled completely out from underneath us and with no warning whatsoever, things really aren't going the way that we want them to anymore. My brothers and I sometimes had this when we were playing dad in ping pong growing up where we would get ahead and we felt like we were doing very well and then we bragged one too many times and we didn't score another point. It's a false sense of security, isn't it? We can find ourselves feeling that false sense of security. Now, this happens in often much more serious ways than table tennis. And by the way, my brothers and I deserved every beating on that table we received. Terrible breakers at times. But we feel that false sense of security. And when that security is taken away, when things are turned on us, all of a sudden, 
we have huge problems trying to figure out up from down what's right, what's wrong, where did this all go wrong? In some ways, look, this parable deals with that to some extent. Jesus is, is in Jerusalem now. It's been two weeks since we were in Mark's Gospel. But we need to remember where we are in Mark's Gospel. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He is in the temple courtyard, exactly where we left off uh, a fortnight ago. He is talking to the chief priests, to the scribes, to the, the Pharisees, or to the elders, rather, the Pharisees come in next week's reading. And he's got less than a week until he goes to the cross. And when we say you know, less than a week until Jesus goes to the cross, it's not a tourist visit. This is when Jesus goes to the cross to die for the sins of those who the Father would give to him. Jesus is talking to people right here, particularly those chief priests, the scribes, the elders, who feel like they are okay, who feel like they don't need to make any changes because they have figured everything out. They've got it sorted. They're okay. And what we see through this parable and what we've seen for a long time is this, this is a false sense of security. They feel safe. They feel safe with the respect people give to them. They feel safe with the power structures in which they operate in. But they aren't safe. They've become entitled. They feel like what they have is what they deserve. This parable is very specifically spoken to those three groups of people, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. But this is also a parable for each one of us. For every single time where we've felt entitled, where we've had something in life and thought, that is what I deserve. And what I have, it's mine, it's all mine, it's nobody else's. I am going to defend that to my very last breath. It's a dangerous attitude to fall into. Now, maybe we don't go to the extremes of it that we see in this parable, but the attitude is wrong nonetheless. If we are beginning to act like that in regards to anything in our life, rather than seeing the things we have in our lives as wonderful blessings from God, rather than think, and seeing them instead as things that we have earned, deserved, and are entitled to, then we have some problems. We need to do some serious soul-searching. Now, just to flesh out a little bit more about where these people demonstrate this false sense of security. In verses 27 to the end of chapter 11, we see these leaders of the Israelites come to Jesus and they say to him, where do you get the authority to do the things you're doing? We haven't given you that authority we're distancing ourselves from you and asking you this question, but we haven't authorised you to do the things that you are doing. And if you haven't got authority from us, what on earth are you doing the things you are doing for? They think that they have all the power and they've forgotten God. They've con they're content with where they're at, but there are huge risks for them if they continue to disregard the God who is sovereign over all things. So that's the context into which Jesus speaks his parable. It's a parable that is incredibly confronting. Just the, the story itself is one that I've spoken to parents who go, I'm not sure how we do this one at family devotions. There are beatings, there are killings, there are stonings, there is a shameful treatment of servants. It's, it's 
meant to make us uncomfortable. It really is meant to make us uncomfortable. If we read this parable and feel like these things are okay, we've got a few things to sort out in our lives. This is meant to make us feel uncomfortable. And it culminates beyond the beatings to this illogical assumption that killing somebody entitles you to the inheritance that belonged to them. This is a brutal parable. It's a brutal parable, but it's a brutal parable that we need to pay attention to. Now, it starts off fairly tame. It doesn't take long to get into the more brutal side of things, but it starts off fairly tame. There's a man who planted a vineyard. He put a hedge around it. He dug a, 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 a hole for the vat to go in, a pit for the wine vat to go in, and he built a tower there as well. When we look at this, we see somewhere which is quite an impressive vineyard. Now, the hedge around it probably wasn't a fence, not a particularly strong defensive fortification, but this would have both looked nice and provided at least some measure of security for both the, the vines planted within it as well as the workers who would lease this vineyard. He dug a place for the wine vat to go and built a tower. The tower would have been a means of both defence and and housing. And for a vineyard to grow well, you need to have good, rich, fertile soil. What we see here is a picture of, really, in terms of if you're a a vine keeper, this is the dream location. This is going to be the dream place to work at. Everything is fantastic. This is all that you could want. It's good land, it's safe, it's secure, it's owned by somebody who both cares for the product and cares for the workers as well, by providing both jobs and housing for them. It's a wonderful setup. It's a dream job with a dream boss, but greed has a way of creeping into hearts, doesn't it? It doesn't take long to get into the nasty stuff of the parable. Verse 2. At the time where the grapes are ripe for the picking, plucking, I'm not sure what the term is in terms of grabbing vines off of, well, the grapes off a of vine, but they're ready to go. Uh, the owner sends a servant to receive some of the fruit from the vineyard. Now, it's interesting to note that the owner sends servants asking for some of the fruit, not all of the fruit. This is not a greedy, unfair thing that's going to leave the workers with absolutely nothing. There is leftover for them too. They can still make a profit for the work that they have done. Again, we see the nature of the boss coming through here. It's wonderful. But the guys working in the vineyard reveal something very quickly that's very ugly about themselves. They lease it, but they act as if this vineyard belongs to them. They think the place belongs to them. Even though somebody else clearly owns it and is clearly in charge, they ignore that. They beat up the servant and they send him away with nothing. So the owner sends another servant. And this one they throw stones at. And we're told at the end there they they, they wound him in the head and they treat him shamefully. We don't know what that conduct is and we don't need to know the specifics to know that this is un godly stuff going on here it is a horrific scene that we have laid out for us it is disgusting behavior 
They send this guy back again with empty hands. And the descent into horrible conduct continues. There are many servants sent and they are all beaten or killed. Not one of them is treated with any measure of respect. It is a truly revolting scene that we have laid out for us here. These guys have a beautiful place to live. They have shelter, they have protection, they have income. All of these things have been provided to them by the owner of the vineyard, but when it suits them to act like he doesn't exist, that is exactly what they do. They did not plant this vineyard, they do not own this vineyard, and the owner is not seeking all of the fruit, just some. But these people refuse to give even some of the fruit to the one who owns it. They are so invested in protecting their own interests that they are willing to kill and maim repeatedly. And we see something here of the way that sin can start off small in our lives. We often think of, everyone feels greedy about something in life, it's okay, but we see here that what can start off as something small, when left undealt with can very quickly become something very very big results in absolutely tragic things happening tragic things happen when we refuse to acknowledge the sovereignty of God over all things now before we get to verse 6 onwards we need to be clear on what this parable is about This parable is, in a broad sense, about God's relationship with Israel. But it's more specifically about the ones who are looking after God's people at this time. The vine dressers, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders... These are the ones who in verse 12, they, they know that Jesus has spoken something against them, but are too scared to act against Jesus at this point in time. There's a specific lesson here for Israel at the time when Jesus said this. There's a bunch of stuff that relates to us as well, but there's a primary lesson here about the relationship between God and his people, and especially about the relationship between God and those who are leaders of his people here on earth. From the time that God called Abraham and his descendants to be, pe- to be his people, part of them being God's people was that they would be a blessing to those around them and that they would glorify God. Yes, they had a place to live. They had a great place to live, but they were meant to bear fruit. They were meant to produce something in service to God. Now, you look at the history of Israel and there were times where they did Live faithfully. Those times are fleeting through the Old Testament. And overall, they didn't really bring, much, bring forth much fruit to glorify God. So what did God do? Just like the owner of the vineyard did. He sent servants. God sent prophets to speak to Israel. The prophets came with a job. That job was to remind people that they are blessed to live where they live. Not entitled to live where they live, but blessed by God's grace to live where they live. And that they needed to serve God and love God more than themselves. It wasn't a popular message and the prophets were beaten, stoned, killed and treated shamefully. Exactly what we see in this parable. 
Now, again, this is very specifically dealing with, at least at this point in time, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And from, from chapter 11, verse 27, we haven't seen anybody else enter into this discussion between Jesus and these guys here. But as I keep saying, there's more here for all of us as well. It's a big problem for many of us. But a lot of responsibility for things going pear-shaped when things go pear-shaped rightfully rests on the shoulders of the leaders. So what we have in verses 1 to 5 is basically Israel's spiritual history in parable form. What we see is they've been given many blessings from God and they sort of turn a little bit into that creature Gollum that J.R. Tolkien writes when he talks about the, the ring that he has. It's mine, my own, my precious. And we see that violent shift when somebody tries to take it away from him. Go away. It's mine. And if you want to take it from me, I will kill you for it. Now, at the end of verse 5, you could expect that the owner of the vineyard is just going to give up. He's had enough. Wipe them out, but he goes further. He sends his beloved son. Now, I hope we understand that Jesus is talking about the father sending himself at this point in time. Now, the son in this parable comes and the vine dressers look and they see the son coming and they recognize the son coming. They say to each other, look, if we kill him, then the inheritance will be ours. Now, that statement is going to fly against everything these guys hold to about inheritance laws at the time. You don't murder somebody and get rewarded for it. That was not how Israel operated. This is meant to be a truly horrific thing. Just like today, you murder someone and there are really big consequences for it. At the time, if you murdered somebody, you didn't get their inheritance. You lost everything you had, including your life. But we see how twisted they are. We kill him, we get it. It's nonsensical. But this is how hard the hearts are when they are not with God. This is how hard our hearts are when we don't love God. So they take the son and they kill him, thinking that they're going to get the vineyard for good. First five verses of this parable Israel's spiritual history with God in parable form, in story form. What we see from here on, this is happening and about to happen. We look at what's just happened from verse 27 to the end of chapter 11. Jesus, we don't want you here. Who gave you this authority earlier in chapter 11? They're plotting to destroy him. This is the Son of God. But Jesus, we don't like you. We don't recognize your authority Yes, we've had a discussion with you where we sort of have to admit, but we don't want to, that your authority comes from God. But we don't like that because we have power. We are comfortable here the way we are and we are not going to change. But if we're going to change, we're going to remove you because you are an inconvenience to us. We like things the way they are. We like the money we get from the people. We like the respect. We like the power so you can go away and we are going to plot to destroy you. And sadly, we see in less than a week from here, this happens. 
yeah, we're going to give lip service. We, we, we're leasing the land. We know that we don't actually own this place here. We know that God is a true leader of his people. Jesus, we've seen more than enough evidence for us to believe that you are God. But we want the power, so we are going to destroy you to keep it for ourselves. Since when was this ever going to work out well for them, do we think? It never was. It never could. This is the Son of God who has made it very clear through Scripture, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. This is a God who they are going up against. This is a God who we go up against when we read the Bible. And we are convicted of something and we just don't want to listen to it. When we do a cut and paste job and our Bibles don't really resemble the Bible anymore. We only read those parts of the Bible that we like. When we only listen to the commands that are given to us in the Bible that we're comfortable with. When we do that, we place ourselves in a very, very similar situation to the to the vine dressers, to the leaders who are currently rejecting Christ. And the owner, he will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. When Jesus was cleansing the temple from Mark 11, verse 15 through to 19, he reminded the people there, that God's house wouldn't just be for Israel. The leaders didn't like that. And now Jesus is going even further and saying, if you guys don't start behaving yourselves, if you guys don't start submitting to the authority of the one who actually owns a vineyard and giving the Jews to the owner that he is worthy of, then what you have will be taken away and other people will have the vineyard. You can't keep doing this forever. You just can't keep rejecting God forever. And if you do, you will be removed and others will be planted in because God will always, always have a people for himself. We hear the words repent and believe over and over again through the Gospels. And for good reason. Because if we do not repent and believe, then we are positioning ourselves in the same spot as the vine dressers in this parable as those who will receive the destruction of God. When we repent and believe, we trust in Jesus. And Jesus reminds them of the scripture that says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Christ is about to be rejected. And he is applying this scripture to himself. He is about to be rejected, yet he is the cornerstone. But how do we feel about that? 
because part of what Jesus quotes here, he also says, this was the Lord's doing and it is marvellous in our eyes. Do we truly see how marvellous it is that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is the cornerstone? That immovable, unbudging cornerstone, which when the cornerstone is laid properly, the building will stand. Do we really find that marvellous? We're meant to. When we love God, we will see this as a marvellous thing and we will have rejoicing in our hearts. So often when we consider the message of the gospel, the admission of our shortcomings, our sin before God, comes hand in hand with the sure hope that we have in Christ. Christ is not just a man, but he is God incarnate. The culmination of Christ's work was his death and resurrection on the cross. It's a message that Paul says in 1 Corinthians is folly and a stumbling block so far as human wisdom is concerned. We might look at this and go, why did the owner keep sending servants? Why did he send his son? The outcome was surely going to be the same. Surely. Humanly speaking, we might look at this and go, this is just crazy. Why keep doing this? Why keep repeating this same process? Well, God kept doing this because this was the best way and, in fact, the only way that we could have salvation from sin. What Christ does in being rejected, and again, as we saw with the triumphal entry, it's not a unexpected thing. The day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem was the day that the Passover lamb was chosen. He is presenting himself before all of Jerusalem saying, I am the Passover lamb that you need. His rejection was not a surprise. What Christ does in being rejected results in him being the cornerstone, the eternal cornerstone that cannot be moved. We don't own the land that we live in. We are very blessed by God, aren't we? As Christians, we are incredibly, incredibly blessed people. And we are blessed. We are blessed to build our lives on the foundation of Christ. In due season, we're going to give glory to God. We are going to give back to God. But that's not a burdensome thing. That's a wonderful thing. We lease the land. We work the land. We are blessed in the land. And we are blessed to have such a wonderful, caring God as we do. We need to remember that what we have is by God's grace. And that we owe everything we have to him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this parable, this parable that cuts to the core of our hearts and for those times where we have acted in exactly the same way as the vine dressers. Lord God, we do repent of that. Yet we thank you. We thank you that Christ is the cornerstone. 
We thank you that despite what looked like a, a failed mission through a human perspective is the greatest success that has ever been known. We thank you that we have a sure foundation, an immovable foundation, and we once more thank you that Christ went to the cross for us, knowing the pain and the suffering that was set before him, he endured this for us. Thank you, God, for this wonderful blessing.